listening to the Carleton Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Me, one of the PhD students with the program. Recently, the situation between the NFL and Colin Kaepernick took an unexpected turn when the Atlanta Falcons invited Kaepernick to a public training session. The quarterback has been at the center of long-standing controversy after being blackballed by the league and all of its franchise ownership for the past three years, after he first took a knee during the ceremonial playing of the American National Anthem in protest of police brutality against African-American citizens. At the time, Kaepernick was at the height of his career, a starting quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, and his suspension and continued exile from the league has been viewed by many as illustrative of the NFL's near-militant anti-activist culture. Without much surprise, Cap's invitation to practice with the Falcons will be received by many franchise owners with dismay, as the vast majority of NFL teams use a last-minute change in venue as a reason to completely ignore Kaepernick's return to the field. While Kaepernick continues to be treated as prime by the league, he's become a symbol of the push for racial equality in America, particularly as a cornerstone of the Black Lives Matter movement, emerging as one of the most prolific and identifiable anti-racist activists in the world today. And he's not alone in this push. From Megan Rapinoe to LeBron James, athletes have emerged as some of the most important figures in contemporary anti-oppression movements. And this simple fact must give us pause to ask the question, what is the place of politics in sports? To answer this question, we spoke to Professor Aaron Edinger, a faculty member here at Carleton with the Department of Political Science. We're obviously in an interesting time politically, um, but at the same time, We've always seen politics seep into sports. I'm thinking, obviously, Muhammad Ali, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos. Mm -hmm. It's always been there um, with differing reactions from the population. But do you think politics has a place in sports? Yes, uh, of, of course, and for two reasons. The first reason is the very political science-y kind of answer, which is that sports is a social phenomenon. It is a social form. It's a, a way that we participate in public life, and especially elite sports, whether it's professional athletes or amateur athletes. I mean, this is a, a very interesting social form around which you know, we all converge to watch and to enjoy. And anything social is going to be political. So it's shot through with uh, relations of power and power dynamics, which are really, really interesting. And they manifest themselves differently, sometimes in ways that we don't even notice. Uh, other times they manifest themselves in ways that are really contentious. And so, of course, politics do belong in sports for almost the default reason that's, that they are, they are social and thus political. Uh, the second reason I think they belong in sports, especially professional sports, uh, and this may be a little self-serving, is that it's really entertaining, right? Professional sports are fundamentally a TV show, right? It's about entertainment. It is a commercial venture. And when you introduce a political storyline, it makes it all the more interesting. So that sounds kind of shallow and cynical, but it's really important and interesting as a way of you know, of bringing out the actual undercurrents of what's going on in these leagues, uh, whether professional or amateur, elite or, or otherwise, right? When we introduce politics into it, it brings out a new dimension that was always there and ought to be talked about. It's fun you mentioned it because I, I couldn't help but think like pro wrestling, you know, how there's <laughs> always a storyline and it's, it's really interesting the politics that seeps into there. If you want to make someone a bad guy, put a suit on him, make him relatively elite. But we're seeing really critical politics being engaged here, yeah. which, you know, 
Some might say that takes away from the game. The game is supposed to just be a distraction from all those other things. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? No, because the game as it is played on the field has never been better, right? The politics of it all is generally off the court, off the field, off the pitch, whatever. It does make the storyline surrounding the game itself more interesting. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the stick to sports, I say in air quotes, uh, the stick to sports mentality is completely unsustainable and, it, and it's intellectually bankrupt because sports are deeply embedded in a political milieu, which for me makes it far more interesting. Now, it may be uncomfortable when an athlete, amateur, professional or otherwise, challenges your political preferences and dispositions. Right? It's very hard to root for a player, even if he's on your team, who holds objectionable political views. But you know, you can opt out. You can opt. You don't have to root for that team. You don't have to root for that player. You don't have to be best friends with these characters. But it does deepen the conversation, and it does offer us very useful inroads into broader conversations that are important to have in a society. We didn't really have that 40, 50, 60 years ago when politics and sports were kept, you know, you know, sealed off from one another. In fact, if you look back in the history of elite sports, finding people who, you know, activists, real activists who laid it all on the line, it's very difficult. And you've already named a couple of them, right? There are only a handful in North American history that I'm familiar with who put their political, put their career, their athletic careers on the line on the basis of principle, right? Muhammad Ali, right? Draft dodger, right? Refused to, refused to be conscripted and was convicted of a, a felony draft evasion, right? And it cost him a couple of years of his professional boxing career, right? Kurt Flood, center fielder for the St. Louis Cardinals, did not want to be traded in his 12th year of professional life to the Philadelphia Phillies for lots of reasons, not the least of which was that they had a lot of racist fans and he didn't want to play in a city that was going to hurl insults at him from the cheap seats, from the bleachers. So, you know, he took Major League Baseball to court and went to the Supreme Court and thus free agency was born. Of course, it cost him his career. He never played again after that, right? The Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 Olympics, right? The Black Power salute on the podium cost them their amateur careers because the Olympics are steadfastly apolitical by rule, which is a political thing to do, right? And of course, in our current moment, Colin Kaepernick, formerly of the San Francisco 49ers, took a knee and was ostracized from the NFL for three years. Uh, It has basically, his protest has cost him his career. But these are really only four or five examples that I can come up with over the last 50, 60, 70 years of athletes who truly laid it all on the line politically. You know, we are seeing it more in our, you know, sports political discourses today, partly because athletes are more secure in their professional careers, right? They make millions of dollars. Most of them have guaranteed contracts to some degree. Uh, And it's also become a little bit more fashionable as they build their own personal athletic brands to attach themselves to some sort of a cause. So it's good for them. But very infrequently do we see Colin Kaepernick's out there risking their entire careers. Uh, I cannot imagine a situation in, in which, you know, LeBron James or Zion Williamson or some other top tier athlete, professional athlete, is going to give it all up for his or her cause. 
What's interesting, you mentioned LeBron, because LeBron to me is like the example of the machine, right? But at the same time, he will go on Twitter, call the president a bum. Mm -hmm. It ends up being, I think, the 11th most liked tweet ever. And you go back, you know, two decades to the 90s, and his counterpart, Michael Jordan, actively avoiding politics. Yep. Like, to the point that, like, he was viewed really negatively in the black community in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like we're in a really special moment now where, like, there is a sense of agency with athletes. What what do you think has brought us to this moment? My instinct is to say uh, that it is cultural, that there is a cultural dynamic these days that is far more permissive for towards personal expression among professional athlete, athletes. The kind of, you know, solidarist mentality of sticking with your team and not standing out in any way like that has, has, has really fallen off, fallen away in recent years. And the taboo of being apolitical as an athlete has, has fallen away with it. It's, it's very interesting that you bring up Michael Jordan because there's that famous sort of apocryphal story that Michael Jordan was once asked why he was apolitical. And he said, well, Republicans buy sneakers, too. We don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, it's so good that it ought to be true. <laughs> and it does, you know, exemplify the huge change in even the 1980s and 1990s to the present. So I think a lot of these athletes look out into the world, especially black athletes, women athletes, and see that there's an opportunity for voice in the system, right? They're not necessarily controlled by their teams as rigidly as they once were. Uh, They're not, they don't have to get through the media gatekeepers as they once did, right? They can communicate directly with their fans via Twitter, you know, in the same way that all these other populist politicians have been able to do. They can get around those gatekeepers as the team, the mainstream media, whatever you want to call it, and generate their own, you know, athletic political brands at the same time. And it's really fascinating to watch. And for LeBron James and others, it hasn't cost him anything, right? You know, LeBron is making, what, $50, $60 million a year playing for the Lakers. He's got his, he got movies coming out. He's in video games. He is a cultural phenomenon. Uh, And at the same time, he can wear t-shirts that say, I can't breathe. He can campaign on behalf of Hillary Clinton and it doesn't cost him a single iota of his legacy. It's interesting because I have thoughts on Space Jam 2. This is neither the time nor the place to discuss that. But why do you think athletes in particular make such good, I guess, political actors in that sense? Because you don't see this with but singers, for example. Like, you know, Bono's been talking forever about stuff and he's mm-hmm. kind of viewed as a pest. But like, when it comes to athletes, people will take what they have to say really seriously versus a musician or an actor yeah. or another public figure. Yeah. Uh, we may be seeing right now with athletes what was the case for musicians 30 and 40 years ago, 50 yeah. years ago or in the 60s. It's new. It is novel to see celebrity activism coming from the athletic sphere. Uh, People may have grown frustrated with wealthy rock stars advocating for the cause du jour. And that's, you know, kind of unfortunate, but that's the case at this point. Uh, It's new coming from athletes. And in a lot of cases, professional athletes and elite athletes doing political activism are coming from places that we didn't see rock stars coming from, you know, in decades past. I mean, a lot of the principal political activists are from, you know, historically marginalized communities in North America, right? All of the Me Too activism, all of the kind of Black Lives Matter activism are coming from black and women athletes who are traditionally marginalized in society 
uh, and now in you know fi- are finding voice in the Colin Kaepernick's, the LeBron James, right? The 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 Eric Reeds, the Megan Rapinos of the sporting world, and it's really interesting to watch. Uh, I hope celebrity activism in athletics doesn't go the way of rock star activism, in which it's just part of the background noise. Just vanity projects. Yeah, vanity projects. But right now, they have a unique platform in society to push their causes. And I think thus far, they've been really successful in managing the kind of individual brand mentality with the you know, substantive activism without actually costing them in terms of their on-field performance. Have you seen differences in that activism based on the sport or on the location? Is the road different depending on what the sport is? Yeah, for sure. And I think we should take in, you know, we're political scientists here. We can take an institutionalist lens on these things, right? So the most permissive environment for sports activism right now, in my mind, is the NBA, right? And the NBA has a couple of things working for it that creates a more permissive environment. Like, I think first and foremost, it is the most star-driven of the professional leagues in North America. You have 12 or 13 players on a team, and there are not a lot of players in the league, and so the emphasis on the player himself is far greater than the NFL, the NBA, the NHL. Also, they don't wear helmets, so the, the, the facial recognition is absolutely there. Also, the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, has, is very, very pro-athlete, pro-star. They've discovered that being permissive is quite good for the league itself because it allows their superstars to be happy, to be out there promoting you know, their causes, but attached with the NBA logo at the end of the commercial or at the end of their conversation. So institutionally, this matters. Uh, we should also, we cannot ignore the fact that the NBA is 75% Black, right? So this is a population in the United States that, you know, has many of whom have seen police brutality. Many of them come from poor and impoverished circumstances. So there is an inbuilt kind of political activism that it runs underneath the current. I think we can contrast that with the NFL, which is probably the most regressive league among the big four in North America, uh, which curiously is also overwhelmingly African-American. It is 68% black. But I think institutionally, the rules of the NFL are very hostile to political activism among the players. One, there are no guaranteed contracts, right? You can lose your job in the NFL even if you've signed a contract for whatever reason. It is very uh, pro-ownership league, right? And the ownership of the league, this is the old boys club, basically an appendage of the Republican Party, uh, and they do not take kindly to insubordination, Further to that, there are 70 or 80 players on a team, and only about five of them are really, really important. One of them is indispensable, your quarterback, so there are only about 32 indispensable players uh, in the league. Add to that a couple of running backs, a couple of wide receivers, maybe a defender or two, but you have a very small percentage of NFL players who can feel secure enough in their positions as stars in a league that doesn't have guaranteed contracts, there is a real disincentive to speak out in a way that compromises the bottom line. Colin Kaepernick did it, and he was turfed. Mm. Uh, other leagues, 
the NHL and Major League Baseball, are, we really haven't seen many test cases of this quite yet. Right? They're relatively apolitical leagues, especially the NHL, which is probably the most sort of conservative of all of the major leagues in North America. So you see activism in different ways in, in the professional leagues. We shouldn't ignore, however, uh, women's sports, right? I think the most pressing you know, the most pressing issues, political issues in women's sports these days is the question of pay equity. Right? So we've seen, especially with the UN, uh, the United States national women's team, uh, take on the cause of pay equity. Right? Megan Rapinoe, who is a superstar of the U.S. Uh, World Cup win- winning team last year, has taken this cause as prime, right? in order to advocate for pay equity. But she doesn't have the same kind of job security or political platform as do the LeBron James or Colin Kaepernick's of the world. So their activism needs to be different. In other cases, uh, and perhaps the most distressing one was the activism of all of those athletes who were abused by Larry Nassar at Michigan State over the last 20, 30 years. Right? Most of them were you know, didn't have any public profile. They were amateur athletes. They really had no institutional foundations for promoting their cause. Just an awful, awful situation. But, you know, in the Me Too era, the impetus to speak out was generated by that Me Too movement. And at the end of the day, we had hundreds of survivors of Larry Nasser's abuse come out as a result of this, uh, you know, groundswell of you know anti-misogynistic, anti-male abuse culture that we saw in the Me Too movement over the last two or three years, and you know, I think one of the great triumphs of that particular movement and the, the political athleticism of our particular era is when you know 140 survivors got a standing ovation on the stage at the ESPY Awards in 2018 when all 140 survivors that came out were awarded the Arthur Ashe Award for courage, right? This is not something I think that we would have seen 20, 30 years ago. It's quite remarkable. So, you know, direct answer to the question now is that it depends on who you are and where you are in your sport, in the institution, and the type of power that accrues to you those kind of factors are going to shape the kind of activism that you see coming out of athletes. It's, it's interesting because I didn't at all think about amateur um, activism or activism in amateur sports. And yeah, when you think about the abuses and even just you know the general NCAA criticism about all the work these kids are putting in to not get a dime while universities take advantage of it, has there been recently like more of a spotlight being put on that particular sort of activism because even myself i i generally just tend to look where like the professional names what's the thing that they're doing where the causes that they're taking on but yeah it seems that there's this huge underswell of uh, amateur sport level activism that people are clearly talking about given the Mm -hmm. sp's example but maybe not talking as much about yeah i mean that's part partly attributable to the fact that professional sports are you know, we get we pay more attention to professional sports. They are always the leads on Sports Center or or whatever. That leaves amateur athletes in a very unfortunate situation where they're not going to get the kind of free media in the first ten minutes of Sports Center on ESPN or whatever. But that doesn't mean that the issues aren't out there. Right? The NCAA has for the last 
couple of decades, players have been advocating for some sort of pay, right? Some sort of way that they can gain some profit off of their name and off of their labor, right? The NCAA universities are doing just fine, thank you very much, profiting enormously off of the free labor of student athletes. That is full-on exploitation, right? A tiny fraction of these players are going to end up making professional money. The rest of them are in the last two or three years of their playing careers. And the universities make gobs of money while they're at it. Think about Kelly Humphreys, right? The the Canadian uh, bobsledder who sued the Canadian Olympic Federation, I think it was that, to be released from her obligations to Team Canada, right? Because she differed with her coaches, with the with the, her particular sports federation, and wanted to compete for the United States. Now, why on earth should an athlete be tied to a particular sports federation on the basis of where they were born? Right? It's sort of an arbitrary thing that we have internalized as being normal. She sued, she lost, she is now obligated to bobsleigh for Canada if she wants to bobsleigh at all. It made a little bit of news because it's a bit of a curiosity, but for the most part, you know, it was a back page thing, end of the broadcast, scroll all the way down to the bottom of, of TSN or Sportsnet or whatever, uh, whatever website you go to, and it was gone. So she, with her, you know, she, she's in a tough situation now. It's interesting, though, because the, the thing that really made me shoot the email to you is the Colin Kaepernick yeah. situation, where three years he's been sitting on the sidelines, finally got the call to go do a public training with mm-hmm. Atlanta, and over last-minute venue changes, no one showed up. And it's amazing how he's still kind of blackballed. Mm-hmm. You, know, you were saying how the NFL kind of has that militaristic approach versus the NBA where like Kawhi Leonard can ship, say, we're not going to the White House and the Raptors don't go to the White House and mm-hmm. me being a Torontonian, like I can't me, help but smile. Me too. Me. I mean, I got a little <laughs> board man gets paid, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is just like a really fascinating thing where there is these institutional differences with organizations and even years down onward, a cap is still being blacklisted. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the the Kaepernick situation is really interesting because you know that workout that happened this past week in November is is a crucial inflection point in the story. So most most of us already know the story. In response to police violence against African Americans, Kaepernick refused to stand for the national anthem when he was with the San Francisco 49ers, Was subsequently blackballed and did not make, you know, could not make a team for the last three years. It was only in the last couple of weeks that the story started to turn a little bit. The NFL offered him a workout, and Kaepernick said, yeah, let's do it. Right? But the terms of the workout were really, really interesting. Right? The NFL said, okay, you are going to work out for us at the following venue, at the, uh, the Atlanta Falcons Stadium. You do not get to bring your own workout crew. Right? You're gonna work out with our guys. There will be no professional scouts at, no team scouts at the workout. It's just going to be the NFL brass and the NFL film crew to film you, and we'll send the tape around to all the leagues, to all the teams. And Kaepernick and people are saying, oh, this is, this is horrible. This is stupid. How could he submit to this kind of thing? You know, Mike Wilbon on Pardon the Interruption said, you know, this is the plantation mentality. This is come here, boy, and dance for us. Right, that racialized dynamic we see all the time. So it puzzled people when Kaepernick consented to this arrangement. But of course, 
30 minutes before his scheduled workout. He sent out a blast saying, nah, not going. Come to a high school about 50 miles north of here uh, in the suburbs of Atlanta, where I will be holding my own workout, where it's open to the media. His fans were there with protest signs and all that kind of stuff. His own workout crew showed up. You know, and he performed for the cameras, uh, workouts like he probably he would have done at Falcon Stadium in front of the NFL. But that sort of marked the end of this story, right? The NFL doesn't suffer this kind of insubordination, now has an opportunity to say, well, we tried. We tried to bring you back, Colin Kaepernick, but you showed us up in public. And Kaepernick has an opportunity to, to, to walk away as well. Right? It's almost like a face-saving mechanism for both sides of the equation. And a lot of really smart football analysts are saying, Colin Kaepernick isn't going to play a game in the NFL ever again because he you know, thumbed his nose at the league when, he was, when the league offered him an inroad back to professional playing. And that might be that. The NFL can say, we tried. It's interesting because when doing kind of my background reading on this, I gathered that it was Jay-Z that actually pressured the NFL to give him mm. that opportunity. And yeah, like you said, like it was under very narrow circumstances yeah. and quite unlike any other opportunities that any other player would be given. Yeah, but we got to remember that like the Colin Kaepernick situation is a total outlier in... NFL history, maybe even professional sports history in in North America, right? He is, you know, a symbol at this point, right? We're going to be talking about him in the same breath as um, Ali, as Smith and Carlos, as Kurt Flood, uh, maybe even as Jackie Robinson, right? Colin Kaepernick is a symbol of black political activism, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I can, like, you know, I can envision a situation where Kaepernick says he doesn't want to play again because it might compromise the status that he now has in American history. And can you imagine a situation where he, you know, this this symbol, this martyr for the cause, goes back and plays and is just sort of mediocre? Saws out, goes plays for Miami or something. Well, yeah, you <laughs> end up in Miami. <laughs> and the ironic thing is that you know there there are a lot of lousy quarterbacks in the NFL right now. A lot of injuries to top tier quarterbacks. He it must be at least performing at you know replacement level uh, uh, levels. You know, or if he were if he were to be brought back. However, it may not suit the kind of personal brand that he has created for himself. So kind of the last thing I'll, I'll ask mm -hmm. in, in this line of questioning is, what do you think the role of social media is? This is a biased thing because my own research looks at social media. So mm -hmm. I'm always interested because I'm personally someone who's that, who believes there is a level of agency there that we don't see. It's a structure we haven't seen in the past. Do you feel that it, it has empowered activism amongst athletes or is it just kind of like clouding the conversation? I think it's empowered those who would have been disposed to political activism anyway. I, just like the rest of the population, social media, uh, you know, people self-select into their communities of dialogue, and that you know, I don't think athletes are going to be any different. So the political, the politically minded are likely to take their politics to social media as well. And that's great. That's fantastic. They have a direct line to one another and to their supporters. 
so we see this nice amplification and in the, the social media sphere connected as it is to mainstream media and the conversations and the, the profit centers of the game, it feeds the beast. It feeds the, you know, I don't want to call it the 24-hour news cycle, but the, you know, the one-hour news cycle. And indeed, you know, that plays to the advantage of the individual athletes if they are in secure enough positions where they're not going to get dinged for their activism. So it works out quite well for them. I think, however, for the most part, we shouldn't overstate the degree of political activism. I mean, for the most part, I think athletes on social media are just more interested in promoting their particular brands, their shoes, talking to one another, you know, putting out their emojis or whatever every time there is a, you know, a killer slam dunk, something along those lines. It's fun. It's shallow. It's kind of silly. We get to see how they interact with one another and feel close to them. But for the most part, it's pretty apolitical, right? Only when it comes close to the line where profit is at stake, right? Where people might stop buying tickets, stop buying shirts, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That's where things get real. And Colin Kaepernick is really the key test case in all of that. Right on. Well, one more question. You're a new prof here at the department and a great addition so thank you. No, oh, thank you very much. Um, what's been going on with you? What are you working on these days? Tell us about your research. Yeah, so I mean, I got a bunch of projects on the go all at once, which is never a good idea because <laughs> you know. Oh, I know that. <laughs> it, it's, it's yeah, because now it's we're, it's late November and all the term papers are coming in. Uh, the thing that I'm thinking about right now is a paper about the potential emergence of a left wing foreign policy in the United States. Is there a left wing foreign policy coming up? coming down the pipeline in the United States. We've heard all about Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and their kind of socialist or progressive orientations towards domestic politics, but does that translate into uh, a worldview, right? Uh, a potential national security strategy, a foreign policy strategy that goes beyond the sort of mainstream liberal internationalism that has not been terribly successful over the last little while. The project I'm looking at, that I'm working on right now, takes a look at the sort of discourses of left-wing foreign policy thought in the U.S. and measures what their political programs are in the Democratic primaries and, and asks, is there an emerging left-wing foreign policy? And this is very political science of me. The answer is sort of, <laughs> but it depends on what you look at. I think in some instances, yes. In terms of economic policy, yeah, we see the Bernie Sanders's and the Elizabeth Warrens most certainly putting out something that is consistent with a progressive view of international economic policy. But on the security side of things, on the international institutional side of things, they cleave very closely to the mainstream. So, you know, spoiler alert, if either of them end up becoming the Democratic nominee facing <clears throat> Donald Trump, if he makes it past the next couple of weeks, uh, we're probably not going to see a Democratic foreign policy that is all that different from Democratic foreign policies of the past. That sounds like it could be an episode unto itself. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Maybe down the line, but... Until then, thanks so much for helping me out with this episode. It's been a great conversation, man. Really liked it. Thank you very much. Go Raptors. Cheers, yeah. Anyways, everyone, thank you for listening. You can follow us on SoundCloud in the coming weeks, also on Spotify and iTunes. Till next time, take care. <laughs>